Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America, trapped on a vast, isolated ranch with nothing and no one else for miles and miles around, deprived of sleep, food and viciously beaten after a gruelling workday, Will the victim survive the place known as the Texas Slave Ranch? Welcome to episode 25 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award winning true crime podcast. This is the final episode of season one. Late March 1984, authorities in Kerrville received a call from Lampasas Police Chief J.O. Tanner. They had been told that ranchers were kidnapping drifters along the I-10 and forcing them to work for free. Joe Davis, a Texas ranger, went out to the area of Mountain Home the following day. The isolated ranch was vast, set over 3,000 acres in the Texas hills. It was less than 20 miles from Kerrville, but shrouded in woodland and desolate fields. From the moment the ranger's car pulled up outside the main house of the ranch, it was clear that this property was a far cry from the neighbouring farms. The few animals that could be seen were thin and malnourished. The ranch was run down and filthy, and the owners were thought of as strange. Walter Wesley Elbracht Sr. had inherited the ranch from his mother, Leona. It had been passed from generation to generation. According to some speculative reports in the press, Their family tree more closely resembled a straight line. 52-year-old senior lived on the ranch with his 30-year-old son, Walter Wesley Elbracht Jr., Jr.'s wife Joyce, and their 8-year-old son, Wes. 
Also residing in the dilapidated space were numerous ranch hands. Senior's wife Margaret had left a couple of years prior, allegedly into the arms of a former ranch hand. The Elbracks were known in neighbouring towns and were thought of as being somewhat off. They neither conformed to social norms nor seemed to understand social etiquette. Every so often, Junior would walk into the local stores barefoot and filthy and ask the owners to sell some keychains that were made at the ranch. By the spring of 1984, fewer keychains were being produced on site. The keychain factory had burned down and the bills were piling up. Senior told a local business owner that he had 15 workers in the factory on the Elbrack Ranch working through the night. That said, the keychains did not sell well, despite costing just 35 cents. They were crudely handcrafted chunks of wood etched with a word or phrase, like peace, hope, love, or help. The I-10 is an east-to-west highway that runs across Texas from the North Mexico border to Louisiana. The almost 880-mile stretch of road is the longest untold freeway under a single authority in North America. At the end of the road, mile marker 880 is the highest numbered marker on any freeway. But for some, the end of the road came much sooner. At exit 488, where a blue Ford sedan would pull up alongside hitchhikers or drifters and offer them an apprenticeship with cigarettes, food and a room in exchange for labour on a ranch. Temperatures during that time were in the low 80s. After walking for miles along the dusty interstate, most men were glad to be offered a place to sleep and the promise of a job. The large, older man in the driver's seat called Senior dropped the new workers off at a building called the Bunkhouse, which was haphazardly insulated with the inner tubes from tyres. Mattresses lay on the filthy wooden floor, and there was no electricity or water. Still, it seemed better than sleeping on the street. The meals consisted of rice or potatoes, sometimes mixed with mincemeat or roadkill. Work there was not just tough, it was hard labour. After a restless night on the floor of the bunkhouse with a dozen other men, some of the hitchhikers decided life on the ranch was not what they were looking for. When they informed their new boss that they wanted to leave, he asked them to wait for a minute while he got some forms for them to sign but Senior came back with his son, who passed out guns to the people surrounding his disgruntled employees. With a handful of weapons pointed at the hitchhikers, Senior fired a shot over their heads and told them, You guys aren't going anywhere. We spent $20 in gas on you, gave you a meal and a place to stay, and now you want to split on us. You may never leave here. One of the men asked if he was going to kill them. He was told that he would die slowly because he had a big mouth. 
Jr. took pleasure in telling the hitchhikers that he and his father had killed people before. The men were forced into the back of a pickup truck with their feet chained together and driven to an area where they were given shovels and a pickaxe. The younger Elbracht Jr. laughed as he told the men, Welcome to your nightmare. A cassette player blared Elvis Presley's Jailhouse Rock while a group of four men and one woman took turns firing shots at the ground near the workers' feet. Senior told them that they would be digging their own graves. Junior quickly rebutted, Don't worry, we don't bury them, we burn them. One of the shots fired by Junior's wife Joyce missed the beer bottles and bounced up grazing one of the hitchhiker's legs. He winced in pain but kept digging because Junior had made the men remove their shirts so he could stick an electric cattle prod into their skin. For four long hours, they were made to dig trenches, unsure if the holes in the ground would serve as their graves. Then their captors debated aloud who they thought was the hardest worker. They picked Robert McCafferty. He had made his way to Texas from Sacramento, California. McCafferty was unchained and forced back into the pickup truck. One of the men he had been chained to urgently told him as quietly as he could, My name is Travis Boyd. I'm from San Antonio. If you get out of here, go to the cops, please. McCafferty was driven back to the machine house at the ranch where Senior was waiting with papers in his hand and asked McCafferty why he should not kill him right then. McCafferty told him, I've got a four-year-old girl in California and I don't think she wants to see her daddy dead. McCafferty signed the forms as fast as he could and promised he would not go to the police if they let him go. Senior told him that the last person who had reported them ended up killing themselves in jail. McCafferty was dropped back on the interstate. Senior's parting words were, No hard feelings. Back on the ranch, Travis Boyd and Edward Blanton were made to keep digging until only Boyd remained. After a while, he was dragged to a tree and handcuffed with his arms around the trunk. Joyce L. Bracht arrived carrying a bag of red liquid. She held it up in front of Boyd and told him, this is all that's left of the other hitchhiker. She then opened the bag and poured some of the liquid into her mouth before throwing the rest of it over Boyd. Boyd was freed and driven back to the main house at the ranch where Senior was waiting next to a noose that hung from a tree. Senior got a dagger from his son and held it to Boyd's throat. He told him to talk to God. It was time to die. Boyd passed out and when he woke up, the noose was placed around his neck. His captors tried to force him to stand on a chair as they pulled the rope tighter. When Boyd tried to ask why they were doing this to him, Joyce said that Senior hated hitchhikers because his wife had run off with one. 
Boyd was then passed some forms. One was a waiver stating that he had not been injured or mistreated. The second read that he enjoyed his stay at the ranch. And the third was a suicide note, reading, I, Travis Boyd, see life as a worthless hole. Boyd was shocked with the cattle prod until he signed his name and wrote his social security number on the forms. With the noose still around his neck, Joyce Elbracht proposed a coin toss. Heads Boyd would live, tails he'd hang. The coin landed on heads. Travis Boyd was eventually dropped back to the interstate where he relied on the kindness of strangers to drive him as far from mountain home as they could before he called Crime Stoppers and told the authorities about the Elbracht family. Texas Ranger Joe Davis and Kerr County Sheriff's Deputy Gary Chapman were greeted by Senior when they arrived at the ranch on March 29, 1984. The men told Senior they were looking for a missing man called Robert. Senior said there was only one Robert at the ranch, and he brought them to him. Robert King was working as a ranch hand, and when Davis asked him if he wanted to leave, King readily agreed. Later that day, King gave a statement where he said he had witnessed Travis Boyd, Robert McCafferty and Edward Blanton being tortured a few days earlier. On April 3rd, Ranger Davis, Deputy Chapman and an FBI agent, Fritz Bernay, went back to the ranch. They spoke to Senior about the allegations of forced labour. Senior said they had not forced anyone to work and that the only handcuffs around were toy handcuffs. He denied using a cattle prod to shock anyone either. Despite this, seven more people asked to leave with law enforcement officers. Howard Bailey, Pete Johnson, Marshall Van Skoik, Daryl Hansucker, Mark Hamilton and his wife, Sherry. Over the following days, the workers who had left the ranch recounted tales of unimaginable horror. They told the police about the operation the Elbracks were running, kidnapping drifters along the interstate, forcing them to work for nothing, beating and torturing them, and then in at least one instance, a man had been tortured to death before being cremated among a mound of tyres. After arrests had been made and the initial revelations were published, more witnesses came forward, including a 19-year-old man called Carlton Robert Caldwell. Along with Walter Elbrack Sr., his son Junior, Junior's wife Joyce, their child wears and the numerous labourers forced to work up to 16 hours a day, other people had also lived on the ranch. Mark Hamilton and his wife Sherry were housed in one of the trailers. Hamilton was a trusted labourer. There was also the cook Pete, who was responsible for feeding the workers with whatever he could come up with from ingredients like oats, rice and meat. Colton Robert Caldwell was given the title of foreman. 
he oversaw drafting up the plans to rebuild the keychain factory. Senior moved Caldwell from the bunkhouse into the main house. He was responsible for cooking, cleaning and entertaining the old man each night. Senior told his workers that he had a heart problem and in the middle of the night he would call out for Caldwell to come in and give him a cardiac massage. The pair would stay up late at night playing dominoes together. Senior had ambitions for his keychain enterprise. He had told local business owners he wanted to be the keychain king of Texas. Senior told Caldwell about his ideas. They'd have cheap or forced labour from hitchhikers and maybe even work from visually impaired people referred from the non-profit organisation Lighthouse for the Blind. These inexperienced workers would be expected to operate dangerous machinery, chopping down cedar trees and carving chunks into keychains. Senior said that he had connections, including the Mafia, so nothing could stop them. Colton Caldwell seemed enamoured with the idea. He had not done well in school or the army, so going into business with Senior seemed like a good bet. Senior promised him half of the profits, which enticed Caldwell to work harder and make others do the same. In February 1984, some new workers arrived, including Anthony Bates and Daryl Hunsaker. Caldwell recognised Anthony from the Salvation Army in San Antonio, around 70 miles from Mountain Home. Months earlier, Anthony had been attacked by a group of men while waiting in line for some food, and Caldwell jumped in to help him. Anthony Bates sometimes went by Alabama or Bama, a nickname from his home state. He was missing one eye and said he'd shot it out when he tried to take his own life. Caldwell was established on the ranch by the time Anthony arrived. It was evident rather quickly that Anthony was not cut out for the work he would be forced to do. Within weeks of arriving, he had been out cutting down trees with other workers when he was severely injured. Anthony had been supporting the trunk as another worker cut through it with a chainsaw. When the tree fell, the blade went into Anthony's leg, cutting through to the bone. The Elbrax begrudgingly brought him to the hospital, and Anthony decided to keep trying to work for them. Anthony Bates couldn't do as much work as the others, and tensions were high. They all slept on the bug-infested bunkhouse floor with no electricity and minimal food. There was no running water. The only place they could wash themselves or their clothes was in a cold pond which was a good walk away from the bunkhouse. Daryl Hunsaker had tried to leave once before, and as punishment he was handcuffed to a pole and shocked with a cattle prod. For hours, Hunsaker was held at gunpoint while Junior and the other workers struck the cattle prod that Junior had named Hotshot into his side arms and tongue. The workers were paranoid and untrusting of one another. 
They knew that if they didn't do as they were told, they would be beaten or shocked. Senior had even threatened to have the wife of one of the most senior workers raped or killed by the Mafia. Fights often broke out between the ranch hands, and things escalated when Anthony Bates was accused of stealing food. Anthony tried to stand up for himself, but Caldwell slapped him, and Junior called out to the others, It's party time. Anthony Bates was systematically tortured for days. While he was tied up sometimes to a tree or between posts by his wrists and ankles, Junior and his group would take turns shocking or beating him over and over again. Anthony was forced to sing Christmas songs or recite psalms from the Bible. No matter how much he begged them to stop, the torture got worse. They would aim the electric cattle prod at his genitals and empty eye socket, trying to inflict the most pain. Junior relished in the torture, and it seemed as though the others did too, or maybe they were just glad that it wasn't them. After the men left the ranch, there was one thing they all recounted. Junior had memorialised the torture sessions on a tape recorder. When Anthony became too weak to scream, he would be thrown into the freezing pond then dragged back to the bunkhouse where the abuse began again. Colton Robert Caldwell later said to the San Antonio Express, The workers would shock him in the creek while he was naked with a bar of soap in his mouth. It was a way to take out frustration. Anthony's body finally gave up from exhaustion, hunger and repeated electrocution. He couldn't eat. He could barely speak. Sherry Hamilton, Daryl Hunsacker and Carlton Caldwell tried to bring Anthony food and drink, but he hadn't got the strength to eat. When Anthony became unresponsive, they tried using rubbing alcohol to wake him up, but it did not work. He was too far gone. Colton Caldwell and Mark Hamilton were sent out to build a fire with wood and inner tubes. They placed Anthony Bates's body on top of the pile before dousing it with gasoline. The cassette tape of the Johnny Cash song Ring of Fire played while Anthony's remains were cremated. Once there was nothing left, The workers were made to shovel the ashes and remnants of the fire into barrels and throw them into a river. Shortly after that, Carlton Caldwell was let go. He had worked more than a month but never received more than a day or two's pay. Daryl Hunsacker took Caldwell's place at Senior's house, cooking, cleaning and massaging Senior's chest whenever he had, quote, an attack. A few weeks later, Travis Boyd managed to escape the ranch and alerted the authorities, which started an investigation that would unearth some of the most disturbing evidence in the state's history. Daryl Hunsacker wrote a detailed statement about Anthony Bates' murder and cremation. Daryl brought Texas Ranger Joe Davis to the spot where they had burned the remains. Peering down at a patch of charred grass and ash, 
Davis picked up a number of what he believed were burnt bone fragments and passed them to lab technicians for the Department of Public Safety to be analysed. After getting dozens of pages of signed statements from the workers who had left since Travis Boyd had alerted the police, investigators obtained a search warrant for the ranch, executed on April 6, 1984. When officers arrived, they noted that Senior's house was filthy. Piles of garbage and pieces of paper littered the floor. A cattle prod was found beneath Junior's bed. Around the property, investigators seized guns, axes, knives, chains, ropes and padlocks. There was also a poem believed to have been written by one of the Elbracks about the bunkhouse. It read, Yes, you're not dreaming. Yes, you're wide awake. Yes, you are in the twilight zone, where there is no escape. Where your nightmare becomes reality. So just relax and enjoy. For here is where you will spend the rest of your life. Off the property, Senior and Joyce Elbracht were arrested on suspicion of kidnapping as the investigation continued. Junior was arrested shortly afterwards in Kerrville. The following morning, the investigators were informed that the Elbracts had concealed evidence and given it to their attorneys. Tom Pollard, who was once the mayor of Kerrville, and his legal partner Richard Mosty. Before the raid began, the Elbracks had consulted their attorneys and told them what was happening. Paul Harvey Hicks, one of the workers who stayed on the ranch after the first group left, gave a statement to the police where he detailed what had happened. The Elbracks confided in their lawyers that they had items on the property, including 18 tapes, that implicated them in the kidnapping and torture of a number of enslaved workers. The attorneys told them to bring the evidence to their office, but the family members were all arrested before they could. Paul Hicks had helped Tom Pollard and Richard Mosty retrieve the evidence from the trunk of a car on the property before the investigators came back. The FBI agent on the case, Fritz Bonet, obtained a federal subpoena and presented it to the lawyers at their office, which ordered them to comply or be arrested. The items seized included a 13-foot chain, forms like those Travis Boyd had been forced to sign, half a handcuff, a dagger, cassette tapes, bloody gauze and a jacket. In total, the investigators had around 40 hours of audio-taped evidence recorded by the accused. Forensic experts were tasked with recovering and analysing bone fragments from the charred patch of land on the ranch. A forensic anthropologist who had assisted in identifying the remains of Nazi war criminal and sadistic Dr. Josef Mengele was brought in to examine 166 pieces of bone. Dr Clyde Snow determined that at least 11 of the bone fragments were human and belonged to a male aged between 10 and 50 years old. Walter Wesley L. Brack Sr., his son Junior 
and Junior's wife Joyce were held on $100,000 bonds after being charged with aggravated kidnapping. At the same time, the district attorney's office tried to decide what charges could be brought against them in relation to the statements about Anthony Bates' murder. The key witnesses included the Hamiltons, Pete the Cook, Dalton Robert Caldwell, Daryl Hunsaker and Marshall Von Skoik, who were all detained to give depositions to the grand jury. A hearing was held on April 12th. The witnesses testified that they had all been forced to take part in the torture and murder of Anthony Bates and the desecration of his body. The grand jury returned indictments of murder not only for Senior Junior and Joyce Elbracht, but also for Mark Hamilton, Daryl Hunsaker and Carlton Robert Caldwell. District Attorney Ronald L. Sutton felt that the three who had been abducted became willing participants in a murder. D.A. Sutton said, The real question is why people in these circumstances would turn on and abuse one of their own. After Anthony got hurt, he couldn't produce. That's when the torture started. It was an animal sort of thing. It's like a flock of chickens or turkeys. If one is wounded, all the rest jump on and peck it to death. Anthony Bates' mother, Joan Loftus, was at home in Huntsville, Alabama, when the authorities gave her the news. She said, They tell me out in Texas there's nothing left but bone fragments. I want to know what happened. It's like Hitler was alive again. It's like Hitler has come back to torture people to death. The FBI came to see me Monday and they advised me to get an attorney and that I could sue these people. But what price do you put on a child? I don't think there's that much money. Leona Elbracht, Senior's elderly mother, would speak to reporters and proclaim her family's innocence. Nobody believes it, she said. We don't hire nobody we don't pay. My kids don't lie to me. God will see it, and he knows. Even the local pastor lent his support, despite the grand jury testimony and charges of aggravated kidnapping and murder. A second grand jury hearing was held in late June, and new indictments were returned for the six that were charged. More defendants were included. The new charges were that of state-organised crime statute violations, which would allow for conspiracy charges and a single trial to be held. This was the first time that the 1977 organised crime law had been used in a case that alleged conspiracy to commit kidnapping and murder. In order to secure a conviction under the statute, Prosecutors had to prove a conspiracy between at least five people. Those individuals charged did not have to be proven to have participated in each act involved in the crime. The prosecutors just had to prove that the defendants had participated in one or more overt act. The indictments read that the accused, quote, 
arrested then and there with intent to establish, maintain and participate in a combination consisting of the said defendants, and in the profits of said combination, conspire to commit the offences of aggravated kidnapping and murder. The overt act listed were the kidnapping and abuse of Travis Boyd, Robert McCafferty, Edward Blanton and Anthony Bates, and the murder of Anthony Bates. The Elbrack's first lawyers were also indicted on misdemeanour charges of evidence tampering, as was Paul Hicks. He had told the investigators about the concealed evidence. Leona Elbracht sold some of her property to retain the services of a notorious lawyer called Richard Racehorse Haynes. Haynes would represent Senior, while his partners Dan Cogdell and Ray Bass represented Junior. Both father and son had been released on bail while they awaited trial. The trials of the nine indicted were severed. Only Senior, Junior and Colton Robert Caldwell faced the charges at a joint trial. Caldwell was represented by a court-appointed defence attorney, Scott Stelling. Caldwell had not been able to post bail. It would be difficult for the state to prove that Anthony Bates had been murdered due to the condition and lack of his remains. With the conspiracy charges the defendants could still face decades in prison. Speaking about the attorney the Elbracks had employed, a local woman, Kay Moon, told reporters, a lot of people think that racehorse is going to get them off, whether they are innocent or not. The trial had been postponed due to numerous motions filed by the defence. Jury selection finally began in late April 1986, over two years since the police first arrived at the ranch. Leona Elbrack still proclaimed that her family were good people. She said, We used to have 2,000 acres. We used to raise cattle, sheep and goats. But I sold them to save my boy. I'm the one who got Haynes. I don't have anything against anybody except the people who are doing this to us. They are lucky I can't get my hands on them. I'd choke them. I am not afraid of the devil. The upcoming trial was the talk of the town. Locals remarked that Leona Elbracht was the only one who believed her family were innocent. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Jury selection began with over 500 prospective jurors who were whittled down over two weeks of questioning and voir dire by the state and defence. One of the questions asked by defence attorney Richard Racehorse Haynes was if jurors had ever been shocked with a cattle prod. The trial was presided over by Judge Tom Blackwell, who was not normally seated in Kerrville. Once the jury of five men and seven women were selected, the state presented their case. DA Ronald Sutton said that the Ulbrachts were motivated by money. Their only source of income had been the keychain business, but when the factory burned down they needed to find labourers and nothing was cheaper than slave labour. Attorney Sutton said that the Department of Justice had considered charging the defendants with federal crimes of forcing people into involuntary servitude. The defence's case argued that Walter L. Bracht Sr. was an elderly, vulnerable man who had been taken advantage of by criminals and perverts who he had tried to help. It was claimed there was no proof of murder, and even if Anthony Bates had died on the property, there was no evidence that it was not a natural death. The defence proposed that Anthony Bates may have even enjoyed the shocks from the cattle prod. The first witness to testify was Travis Boyd, the man who had alerted the authorities about the abuse on the ranch. Boyd spoke about how he was abducted and forced to dig a trench before his life became dependent on the toss of a coin. The Elbrack's attorneys set the tone for the trial immediately when they began to attempt to discredit the witness based on his past criminal history. Boyd admitted to having prior convictions and attending a drug abuse program over a decade earlier. He denied lying about his experience at the Elbracht Ranch. Haynes also made a point to clarify that Travis Boyd had been paid $250 from Crime Stoppers for reporting the ranch. Next to testify was Robert McCafferty. McCafferty had been the first man freed on the day that he, Travis Boyd and Edward Blanton were tortured. McCafferty testified that he did not report what had happened until he was back in California because he had received a lift from a man who was drinking and driving. The driver did not want to go to the police. The defence attorney confronted the witness about ignoring Travis Boyd's plea for help and Robert McCafferty replied, I was scared. I wanted to go back to my family and familiar surroundings. 
Attorney Haynes told the witness that he had not contacted authorities until he believed there was something in it for him, a claim that McCafferty branded as BS. The defence attorney brought up McCafferty's past, which included a statutory rape charge. McCafferty said that he believed the girl was older. Haynes kept reverting back to the witness's criminal record when McCafferty pointed to the defence table and spoke about the system letting men like the Elbracks walk the streets. Attorney Haynes quickly interjected with, a system that allows a man who has forcibly raped a 14-year-old girl to walk the streets. Attorney Haynes had to be reminded that Robert McCafferty was not the one on trial, which led to audible agreement from the public gallery. Texas Ranger Joe Davis spoke about the investigation from the phone call made by Lampasas Police Chief Jay O'Tanner up to the indictments. Attorney Haynes got Ranger Davis to agree that after the police arrived, the Elbracks had never protested when the workers asked to leave. FBI agent Fritz Bonet testified about a prior interaction he'd had with Walter Wesley Elbrack Sr. a few years before the kidnapping and murder charges were brought. Agent Bonet said that the Elbracht family member known as Sr. had complained that organised crime like the Mafia were involved in fence-cutting and cattle theft at the ranch. Attorney Haynes claimed this highlighted that Senior could be senile and did not have a firm grasp of reality. The prosecution played to the court the tape recordings found at the ranch. Junior's voice boomed out in the otherwise silent room. Live from the bunkhouse, it's shock time. The sound of buzzing emanates from a cattle prod as a man screams in pain, followed by laughing and cheering. The other voices on the tape were identified as being Mark Hamilton, Colton Robert Caldwell and Daryl Hunsacker. The man in excruciating pain was Anthony Bates. Junior L. Brack narrated the torture session and even feigned a commercial break on the recording. He said... Introducing Hotshot. Having trouble with your neighbours? Try Hotshot. Tie them up anywhere. You'll have hours and hours of fun shocking the hell out of them. Batteries only 30 cents. Available at any feed and supply store. Now back to our programme. Daryl Hunsacker cried while the tape was played. Other witnesses had given statements that alleged that Hunsacker had been handcuffed to a tree and shocked repeatedly before the Elbracks decided to promote him. Hunsacker was also facing a murder charge, and on the stand he admitted that he had been present at the torture sessions. He said that at least five sessions lasted around an hour each. Hunsacker testified, Anthony started feeling real weak. He could not walk even if he had wanted to, and he did want to get up. We would always have to pick him up and carry him to the barn or up to the house. He just felt too weak because of the torture. 
during cross-examination, the defence attorneys played the tapes again to point out how much Daryl Hunsaker had participated in the abuse. Hunsaker said that he had been too afraid not to get involved, because otherwise, it could have been him in Anthony Bates's position. Walter L. Brack Jr.'s attorney, Ray Bass, reminded the jury that Daryl Hunsaker had been granted use immunity, so his testimony could not be used against him at his own trial before Hunsaker admitted that he had urinated on Anthony Bates. Hunsaker said, All the stories I told, I feel I told the truth. I maybe couldn't remember everything, but what I said is close to what happened. Hunsaker became inconsolable when attorney Haynes walked towards the witness box with the cattle prod used in the abuse. He asked Hunsaker to step down from the stand, and the witness cried out that he would not go near the cattle prod. Haynes insisted that he would let him hold it, and Hunsaker said he would not touch it. Defence attorney Dan Cogdell shouted out, You touched it back in February when you tortured Bates. Judge Blackwell told Daryl Hunsaker he did not have to handle the cattle prod, which brought applause from the spectators in the courtroom. The defence were aware of the public sentiment and compared the people in the gallery to a lynch mob. Members of the public had lined up outside the court early each morning to try and obtain one of the 150 seats in the gallery. Just seven days into the witness testimony, the judge issued a warning. Judge Blackwell said, Spectators are always welcome at a public trial in America, but they must not participate in the trial. The Supreme Court has ruled that on review, convictions can be reversed when the spectators have participated. I'm sure that no one would wish to see a conviction overturned because spectators became involved. After completing his testimony, Daryl Hunsaker was surrounded by reporters on the steps of the courthouse. The footage was broadcast on local news stations showing an exchange between a reporter and Hunsaker. When asked what he would do if the accused were acquitted... Daryl Hunsaker responded, I would have to hunt them down. I would kill them. His attorney interjected and said that Hunsaker did not mean it. His client was just upset. Even though his testimony was completed, the defence tried to get the footage admitted into evidence to show the jury that Hunsaker was not as meek as he had seemed on the stand. Another section of one of the tapes was played again before the ranch cook Pete testified. Pete told the investigators that he had left the ranch for three months at one stage, before being forced to go back and work for free. He said that whenever someone tried to leave, the Elbracks would, quote, scare them a little bit or something. They used some force. Pete said that he was glad he had left the ranch when the police came because he was afraid of everything that went on there. Under cross-examination, the Elbracks attorneys got Pete to admit that Walter Wesley Elbracks Sr. had been like a friend to him. 
The defence painted Senior as a kind old man who had hired men who likely would not have found employment elsewhere because they were drifters with criminal records. Attorney Haynes even got Pete to admit that sleeping in the bunkhouse was nicer than most places where drifters could stay, as if they should have been grateful for the insinuated kindness the Elbracht family had bestowed upon them. It was alleged that the prosecution played the tapes piece by piece for sensational effect, so the defence attorneys tried to use the tapes to their own advantage playing lengthy sections to desensitise the jury. Each tape that was played featured Anthony Bates' voice growing weaker and weaker. Another witness who had worked on the ranch, Paul Harvey Hicks, testified that he had informed the authorities about the evidence the Elbrack's initial lawyers had obtained. Hicks had been indicted on evidence-tampering charges but he had been granted use immunity for his testimony. Defence attorney Haynes accused Hicks of cutting a deal with the prosecution and lying in his statement, implying that Hicks had been more culpable in the crimes than the witness let on. Elbrack's initial attorneys, former Mayor Tom Pollard and Richard Mosty, were also indicted on evidence-tampering charges. They testified about what they heard on the cassette tapes. Marshal von Skoik admitted on the stand that he and other workers had shot at the ground around the feet of men who were forced to dig a trench. He confirmed other elements of the story, including that they had been forced to sign forms, threatened with a noose, and that the Elbrax had implied a meat grinder was used to dispose of bodies. Mark Hamilton, who was also charged told the jury that he had been beaten and shocked by the Elbracks a number of times before he participated in the torture of Anthony Bates. A portion of the recording was played where Anthony could be heard pleading for death. Hamilton responded to him on the tape saying, No, I wouldn't kill you because then I'd never get any work done. Anthony was forced to repeat what his tormentors said like, I'm a woodyard slave. I enjoy being tortured. The harrowing audio left many of the spectators and jurors in tears. Mark Hamilton's wife Sherry testified that Junior had forced her and her husband to stay and work on the ranch. She recounted one instance where Junior had handcuffed her to a bed while repeatedly shocking her with the cattle prod. Sherry said that Junior was laughing and his wife Joyce was standing there watching. Sherry had also witnessed some of the abuse inflicted on Anthony Bates. She explained that after finding Anthony unresponsive, her husband told her that he had to burn a cow carcass. Later that night, he admitted it was not a cow. It was the body of Anthony Bates. Mark Hamilton described how he was ordered to shovel up the ashes and put them in a barrel to be disposed of in the river. Outside the presence of the jury, Sherry Hamilton also claimed Walter Elbrack Jr. had raped her. 
This was not said before the jury because it would have led to an automatic reversal on the basis that it would implicate Junior in a crime that was not listed on the indictment. On the fifth week of testimony, Anthony Bates' mother, Joan Loftis, took the stand. A photo of Anthony was shown to the court as Joan spoke about her son's life. She said that Anthony had dropped out of school before joining the Army and Marine Corps, but he was unable to find work. He had travelled to California and got married, but after divorcing his wife, Anthony came back to Alabama in 1980. It was here that he shot himself in the head and lost an eye. Joan said that her son changed after this, from a quote, bright, happy young man, to slow. He wasn't coordinated. He couldn't put things together that well. Joan said that Anthony became a drifter, and he left a note saying that he was going to Texas in the middle of 1983. The next thing Joan heard was from the police, when officers said they believed her son had been killed on March 13, 1984. Medical examiner Dr. Vincent DeMeyer testified that the repeated shocking, beating, and exposure to cold temperature and water Malnourishment and a lack of medical treatment all culminated in being dangerous enough to cause death. Dr. DeMeo said, All of this trauma would decrease the body's ability to survive. With every shock, the energy in every human muscle depletes. That's how electricity kills you, by causing an irregular heartbeat. Seniors attorney Richard Haynes said that he would be presenting an expert witness who would testify that the voltage in a cattle prod was insufficient to cause death. Haynes remarked, It hurts like hell, but it won't kill you. The attorney tried to imply that Anthony Bates received sexual gratification from the torture. Haynes asked the medical examiner if it was possible that Anthony's self-inflicted gunshot wound could have impaired him mentally and led to some form of masochistic deviance. Haynes quoted Anthony's statement in one of the tapes where he said, Not there over here. It feels good over here. Haynes asked, Doesn't that sound like someone who is not resisting the abuse? Colton Robert Caldwell's attorney had the medical examiner confirm that Anthony's heart was on the right side of his body, according to his medical records. Another section of the audio was played, and Anthony cried out, Oh my God, I'm dextrocardiac. Dextrocardia is a condition in which the heart is pointed towards the right side of the chest. Typically, the heart points toward the left. As the injuries were being inflicted to the left side of Anthony Bates's body, this indicated that he was not seeking sexual gratification as the Elbrac's attorney had alleged. He was asking for death. After 23 days of testimony provided by 23 people, the state rested their case. 
the defense began presenting their witnesses to the court. The Elbrac's neighbour William Klein testified that he had been worried about the workers they were hiring on the ranch. Voicing his worries for Walter Wesley Elbrac Sr., Klein said, I was afraid they were going to knock him in the head and steal everything he had. I was concerned that they would kill his whole family. The defence alleged that the case boiled down to another rancher wanting to obtain the Elbrac's land. Attorney Richard Haynes told the court that the other rancher had sent a representative to warn them that they would be indicted for capital murder and sentenced to death if they did not sell their property. Haynes said that once the Elbrac's had agreed to sell the land, the capital murder charges were dismissed and the organised crime indictments were granted. To bolster the defence's claim that Anthony Bates could have died as a result of an accident such as hypothermia from bathing in the cold pond, they called a technician from the Department of Parks and Wildlife to testify about the temperature of the water on the property. Charles Shaw answered the attorney's questions. Still in a shocking twist, he said that while visiting the property in 1983, he was approached by a man who claimed to have been held at gunpoint by the Elbracks. Shaw said that he had been unable to give the man a lift in his government vehicle, but he did report the incident to the Kerr County Sheriff's Department. Attorney Haynes struggled to recover from this damning testimony and asked Shaw why, if he had seen something like that, had he not testified to the grand jury. Joel Shaw replied that he had in fact been a part of the grand jury that secured indictments against the defendants for both the murder charge and the organised crime charge. Attorney Haynes' attempts to discredit his own witness backfired when he asked Shaw to clarify that he had been compensated by the defence in exchange for his testimony about the water temperatures, which resulted in a chorus of laughter from the spectators and the judge. After a defence witness testified that a cattle prod could not conduct enough electricity to kill a human, Attorney Richard Haynes took it upon himself to demonstrate to the jury what it looked like to be shocked with one. He allowed his co-counsel to prod him with the instrument known as Hotshot, while he stood expressionless. Walter Wesley Elbrac Sr.'s mother, Leona, took the stand. The frail elderly woman staunchly opposed any allegations against her family and even claimed that Anthony Bates did not exist. When she was cross-examined by the prosecution, she refused to answer most of their questions, insisting that she was tired and wanted to go home. District Attorney Ronald Sutton asked Leona if her son and grandson had ever worked in the barn at night. She replied, What would they be doing at the barn at night? Milking cows? The DA remarked, Maybe they were torturing Anthony Bates. The only defendant to testify in his own defence was Carlton Robert Caldwell. 
the ex-foreman at the ranch was just 21 years old and cried while he told the court that he had attempted to take his own life five times during the preceding two years he had been on remand in Kerr County Jail. Caldwell said, In a way, I'd just like to get away from these circumstances I'm facing and be with my creator. Caldwell spoke about his life on the ranch. He had started off in the bunkhouse with the other drifters and was eventually moved into the main house, where he had to cook and clean for Senior. Caldwell said that he had worked at the ranch for over a month, 16 hours a day cutting wood and 4 hours a night taking care of Senior or drafting blueprints for Senior's latest business plan. When they let him go, they only paid him $65. He spoke about the fear that was instilled in him from the moment he arrived. Caldwell said that Senior had told him that he had mafia connections and others who had tried to leave before had been killed. Caldwell told the jury he pointed to a meat grinder beside the refrigerator and said it had been used on various occasions to dispose of human corpses. For over a week, Colton Robert Caldwell was cross-examined by the Elbrax attorneys. They played sections of the tape where Anthony Bates had begged Caldwell to stop, saying he wouldn't do the same to him. The co-defendant said that he had only participated because if he didn't, he, quote, could have well been cuffed himself and been in Anthony's position. Attorney Haynes told the court that Carlton Caldwell had been treated like a family member by the Elbracks and reminded the defendant that he had even been entrusted to play with Junior's eight-year-old son. The torture tapes were played at length in court. Caldwell was asked if he had been the one to call Anthony a bitch and if he asked Anthony if Jesus had gone through that much torture. Caldwell admitted that his voice was on the tape, but it was part of an act to spare himself. He claimed that it had been his idea to record the torture sessions, so there was proof of what happened that could be passed to the police. After Carlton Richard Caldwell's testimony, the state began to present their closing arguments. Prosecutor Jerry Carruth, who had been assisting the district attorney throughout the trial, told the court that the Elbracks had lost their income when the keychain building had been burnt down. A witness had testified that Walter Elbrack Sr. claimed to make $1,000 a day from selling the keychains. The prosecutor told the jury that Sr.'s wife had left him for a drifter which fueled his hate for transients and hitchhikers. His son Junior had been more than happy to join in his father's scheme of abducting men and forcing them to work for free. Whenever someone tried to leave, they were tortured or chased through the woods and dragged back to be handcuffed to their bunk. Prosecutor Carruth said, Now we may never know the true cause of Anthony Bates's death medically. We don't know whether he died of pneumonia or a ruptured spleen or whether he had hypothermia, 
But ladies and gentlemen of the jury, it really doesn't matter, because the fact is that all that remains of Anthony Bates is spread out before you on the jury box. Those bones that were identified as being human and coming from the burn site on the ranch. The rest of the ashes and remains of Anthony Bates were scattered in some unknown location. That's all that remains of him. So we know he's not with us, but we do know that his soul and spirit are out there somewhere and that they will not rest until the people responsible for his death have been made to answer for these atrocities that were committed against Anthony Bates during his lifetime. Most reasonable persons would believe if you beat a person repeatedly for a period of several days, kick them with your feet, and beat them with your hands and fists, and shock them, and urinate on them, and throw dirt on them, and make them eat soap, and physically abuse these people over a period of time that this could result in serious bodily injury or death to the person as happened in this case. Defence attorney Dan Cogdall said that Walter L. Brack Sr. had no idea what was going on at the ranch. Cogdall claimed that Sr. had been kind to the workers, bringing some of them to AA meetings or paying their bus fare. Cogdall painted the alleged kidnapped victims to be criminals and deviants, reminding the jury that Travis Boyd had been treated for drug abuse, and another who the attorney called Robert, simple sex with a minor McCafferty, had previously been charged with statutory rape. According to the defence, jurors and spectators alike had supposedly been enthralled by evidence, quote, cooked up at the ranch by Cook Pete. In his closing address, attorney Dan Cogdall listed the prosecution's recipe for a conviction. He said that they had used some speculation, a rush to judgment and perjury from convicts, before simmering and serving it to the jury. Dan Cogdall insisted that Walter L. Brack Sr. was unaware of what had happened to Anthony Bates telling the jury, we got an old man out there, 60, 65, kind of vapour-locking, fumigating, backfiring sort of guy. You've seen him in the courtroom fall asleep. He ain't exactly 100% seven days a week, 365 days a year. Cogdall said that the suit senior wore to court each day was the only suit he owned, and he had bought it for his wedding day. Attorney Richard Haynes explained that the repeated playing of the tapes left him concerned that the jury would stampede to a judgment. According to Haynes, the tape contained, quote, blasphemies against motherhood and sexual terms so repugnant, gross, perverse, that they would cause the brow to furrow and the knuckles to whiten. They were so prejudicial they could lead jurors to loathe, despise, hate, abominate everyone at the table, including the lawyers. This tape, this assembly of men, this could be a psychiatric puzzle that our colleagues in the medical discipline could work on for years. Those of you with psychological training have probably perceived there's a common thread that runs throughout the people involved in the sessions that our tape recorded. Mr. Elbrack Jr., 
a young man whose mother ran off with a transient who's there on the ranch. Bates, the alleged victim, when he was being shocked with the prod, he didn't call out for his mother. Instead, he called out his stepmother's name. Defense attorney Haynes told the court that one of the most egregious and tragic fallouts of the case was the indictment of the Elbrac's first lawyers. Haynes said, You'd almost have to be made of stone not to share with them the heartbreak that they manifested when both of them testified about the ignominy of being a lawyer under indictment. Was that an act on the part of somebody simply acting in the name of political expedience? Was it an effort to capitalise on the tragedy and misfortune that has befallen these people for being accused? Those stinging words that will haunt those two lawyers as long as they live. The fact that their children will not ever be able to live that down, no matter how innocent they are of these offences that are accused against them. I submit to you that they are innocent. They'll not live down the ignominy of those indictments. That's a tragic fallout. Defence attorney Haynes claimed the entire case was a conspiracy to steal the Elbrax ranch, and the workers were ungrateful lowlifes who Walter Elbrax Sr. had taken in and given food and shelter. Haynes told the jury that most of the victims were homeless or transient, and the prosecution paid for motel rooms and food for them so they could testify. He implied that they had lied to reap the benefits of being a prosecution witness. Haynes warned the jury not to trust the testimony of people who had been indicted for the same crimes. Haynes said that Senior was a lonely old man who only sought company after his wife had left, and even a ten-year sentence could be a death sentence for someone of his age. Walter Elbrack Jr.'s attorney played a six-minute segment of the taped final torture session and said that it proved Anthony Bates was not near death at the time. He claimed that all Junior had done on the tapes was use foul language and that there was no evidence that repeated shocks from a cattle prod could cause death. Colton Robert Caldwell's legal counsel Scott Stelling claimed that the other workers who had been indicted deserved to testify, but they had not been granted use immunity. Stelling said Caldwell might be guilty of injuring Anthony Bates, although he did not conspire to commit murder or serious bodily harm. Stelling argued that the state had not made its case against his client, and asked for convictions to be brought against the father and son, who he saw as responsible. In the state's rebuttal, District Attorney Ronald Sutton told the jury to use their own, quote, common sense, own logic and own wisdom. What happened out in the pasture after Caldwell hit Bates in the first act of brutality and violence? Junior said, Come on, boys, it's party time. You don't have to have an agreement engraved in stone or written on paper to be prosecuted under the Organised Crime Act. You can infer agreement from actions. Five deaf and dumb people could conspire. 
the jury began deliberating on July 14, 1986. The trial had initially been expected to last just three weeks, but it continued for three months, becoming one of the longest, most sensational and expensive trials in the history of Kerr County. After more than 20 hours of deliberation, the jury returned with their verdicts. They found all three defendants guilty of the offences cited on the indictment, which were conspiracy to kidnap or murder. The jury further concluded that the defendants had used firearms in the kidnapping. However, jurors did not clarify which conspiracy charge they had found each defendant guilty of. After some confusion, it was clarified that the jury had found all three defendants guilty of just conspiracy to kidnap. They believed that the accused had intended to release the abductees, which reduced the charges to a second-degree felony. Walter Wesley Elbrack Sr.'s attorney Richard Haynes said, I see this as an absolute acquittal on the conspiracy to murder charge. The maximum sentence the defendants face was 20 years in prison and a $10,000 fine. As Texas has bifurcated legal proceedings, the jury were chosen to decide what sentence would be imposed. As none of the three convicted had prior felonies, they were eligible for probationary sentences. Colton Robert Caldwell's attorney withdrew his client's request for probation, believing that if the sentence was 15 years or less, Caldwell would be eligible for release almost immediately because he had been in jail for two years already. In a final plea for his clients, attorney Richard Haynes said that the Elbracks had been punished enough, telling the court, You go into a restaurant and people make the noise of a cattle prod. You go on the street and you see Camp Slave Ranch t-shirts. You hear a young boy on the sidewalk yell, Guilty, guilty. The question now is the question of how much pain you're going to inflict. Defence attorney Haynes likened Travis Boyd and Robert McCafferty to people who tried to dodge the bill at a restaurant, saying that most would demand they wash the dishes or maybe, quote, hit them with a cattle prod, some ranch justice. Walter L. Brack Jr.'s attorney said that his client was a precious container of life who deserved a second chance. The defence argued that their clients had already been humiliated and despised. In his summary to the jury, District Attorney Sutton asked them to impose the maximum 20-year sentence for both Elbracks and a 15-year sentence for Caldwell. DA Sutton contrasted the defendants the jury were faced with to the group of tormentors who had decided Anthony Bates' fate. His crime was allegedly stealing food from other workers. Sutton told the jurors, Now, ladies and gentlemen, the accused are convicted, and it's time to protect society. 
the jurors sentenced Walter Wesley L. Brack Sr. to seven years of probation, with 120 days in prison. His son Walter Wesley L. Brack Jr. received a sentence of 15 years. He filed an immediate appeal and was allowed to remain out on bond. Colton Robert Caldwell was given a sentence of 14 years. He had already served 27 months in jail, so he was released on mandatory supervision in 1988. Anthony Bates' mother, Joan Loftus, filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the Elbracks in San Antonio in 1984. Four years later, after Walter Wesley Elbrack Sr. was acquitted of murder, he filed an emergency motion for protection from his creditors. This delayed the civil lawsuit. Speaking about the delay, Joan Loftus' attorney said, this does not come as a surprise when you consider the dastardly things that were done to Anthony Warren Bates that came out in the criminal trial. Walter Elbrack Sr. had already transferred millions of dollars worth of his land to relatives to avoid the lawsuit and filed for bankruptcy. He was being pursued in several civil cases by Anthony Bates's mother, and the Hamilton family for the trauma inflicted on Sherry when she was abused and sexually assaulted by Junior. The following year, Joan Loftus was awarded $1.7 million worth of land on the ranch where her son was killed. She has since sold it. Walter Elbrack Jr. was free on bond until 1990 when the Court of Appeal ruled that he was not entitled to a rehearing and had to serve the 15-year sentence imposed in 1986. He was arrested in Austin and taken to prison where he spent the next six years. District Attorney Ronald Sutton said that the charges against the six others who had been indicted in the conspiracy case would not be pursued. Walter Elbrack Jr.'s wife Joyce had been due to stand trial alongside him in 1986, but the case was severed from his, and she divorced him in 1988. The others who had been indicted were hitchhikers who had been abused at the ranch. Joe Ortiz was deemed incompetent to stand trial. Marty Miller had attempted to take his own life by an overdose during the trial in 1986 because he was too afraid to go to court. Daryl Hunsacker, Paul Hicks, Marshall Van Skoyk and Mark Hamilton are all on record during the trial admitting that they had participated, but they insisted it was out of fear for their lives. Junior's only child, Walter Wesley Elbrack III, spent his life paying for the sins of his father. Despite being raised by two people who were indicted for murder, Wes grew up being a beloved member of his community. He was a proud single father who is remembered for being kind and caring. On Sunday, January 20th, 2013, 
as his SUV veered onto the wrong side of the road along the SU-290, sideswiping one car before it collided head-on with another. Wes was pronounced dead at the scene. His mother, Joyce Elbrack, said to the San Antonio Express News, My son was a very caring person, and he did whatever he could to help anyone in need. He couldn't help what his father and grandfather did, but he was never anything like that. Wes was always trying to see the good in people. Joyce added, I raised him the best I knew how. Everybody says I'm a strong person for what I've been through. I try to teach him right from wrong. Joyce L. Brack told reporter Eva Ruth Moravec that Junior had refused to help pay for his only child's funeral, allegedly saying, Let the county worry about it. One spectator who had watched almost the entirety of the trial in 1986 had told reporters, I have an idea this will be history. I want to be able to say I was there. The trial was sensational. Spectators listened to not only harrowing testimony and horrific audio, but they witnessed the prosecution and the defence butt heads relentlessly throughout. At one point, defence attorney Dan Cogdell likened the prosecutors to, quote, two midget wrestlers and called one of them potato-shaped. Prosecutor Jerry Carruth remarked, You can always tell when you're hurting the defence. They squeal like a pig. District Attorney Ronald Sutton later told the Houston Chronicle that Carruth would begin each morning before the trial by bellowing, It feels good. Words that Anthony Bates had cried out on the audio tapes of his torture. The prosecutors also had a skeleton in their office that had a sign across its chest that read, I survived the slave ranch trial. It was a shocking experience. During the trial, the owner of a local store had testified that the Elbrax keychains had rarely sold prior to the legal proceedings. Afterwards, he was able to charge four times the price for the keychains due to demand. Joe Marino said at the time, I have 100 left, but I'm going to hold them until the movie comes out. Marino had told the court that the keychains bore inscriptions like Help, I'm Blue, and They say it's tough, but this is ridiculous. Walter Wesley Elbrack Sr. died in 2003. His grandson died 10 years later, and Junior died in 2013. The sensational horror story associated with their ranch has outlived them all, but there was no justice for Anthony Bates. In 2013, defence attorney Dan Cogdell told the San Antonio Express... It was some of the worst evidence I've ever seen. I totally thought we were screwed. This was the craziest case I've ever had. But these were drifters. 
and they were seen as less in total to the benefits than the rest of us are. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson and Eileen McFarlane. Editing by Brad Maybe. Script editing, additional writing, illustrations and production direction by Rosanna Fitton. Narration, narration editing and production direction by Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law and Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We will return for Season 2 on Tuesday, April 19th. Thank you for listening. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.